Gary Mason grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. One of his best childhood friends was later shot dead in the conflict, and another served 18 years for murder. But Gary went on to become a Methodist pastor and to be intimately involved in the peace process that led to the Good Friday Agreement signed 25 years ago on the 10th of April 1998. He's written that his life has been shaped by a conflict I did not create and by forms of violence I do not endorse. Today, his organisation Rethinking Conflict continues the work of trying to move towards peace in the places and amongst the people where it might seem impossible. Reverend Dr. Gary Mason, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Hey, thank you, Julian. That's appreciated. Gary, I wonder if you could give us a snapshot of the world you were born into and the sectarian culture that you grew up in. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a street. It was probably mostly British Protestant Unionist area. The late 1960s, early 70s were what you and I would call mixed neighbourhoods or integrated neighbourhoods. So in my street, primarily Protestant Unionists, but there were Catholic families. And so as a little boy, you began to wonder why these neighbours disappeared. Sometimes quiet knocks on the door encouraged them then to move to their own neighbourhood. Or more validly, a petrol bomb or a Molotov cocktail through their window. And we ended up with very, very polarised neighbourhoods across Northern Ireland, but particularly in that those urban sprawls of Belfast and Derry. As a six-year-old boy, my grandparents uh, would often have taken me to watch the Orange Order, which is primarily a Protestant organisation, and have major parades throughout the year, but primarily spring through to late summer. Uh, very colourful parades, bands and banners uh, telling history. Uh, history from one particular perspective, obviously. Uh, there's a great TED talk called The Danger of the Single Story or the Single Narrative. So we were all brought up with single stories or single narrative. And Gary, I mentioned that story that you've told about what happened to some of your childhood friends. What was it, do you think, that drew you into a different direction? There's really, you know, you can analyse it theologically, sociologically, psychologically, philosophically. I just didn't make that choice. Mm. And while I always want to condemn uh, political violence or religious violence, condemnation is not enough. You have to ask the question, why ordinary little boys growing into teenage years making disastrous decisions? And a colleague of mine once described it like this. He said, in the late 1960s, someone did not fly over Northern Ireland or the north of Ireland Spray is all with lunatic gas, and we all woke up one morning and said, let's start killing each other. There was a context, and I would argue that toxic politics and toxic religion has shaped this troublesome island of Ireland for centuries. So there was a narrative you were being shaped by. And the statistic, Julian, I often highlight in relation to that is, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, because, you know, I'm going to name a certain year here eventually, uh, 1998, uh, so... Prisoners were released. That was part of the, the deal to get the agreement. But altogether, we had approximately 30,000 people call them terrorists or freedom fighters or political prisoners released from prison over the course of the conflict. How many have reoffended? Something like two or three percent. So you can't say these people were natural born killers or psychopaths. So there was something within this context. As someone once said, in reality, in many ways, you were sucking the air of sectarianism from the milk from your mother's breast. 
this. So I didn't make that choice and there's really no simple answer to it. I don't know why. I've kind of teasingly said this, is there such a thing as a theology of luck? But some people just made decisions in so many ways that they didn't understand. I mean, one friend of mine who's still alive said he joined the Ulster Volunteer Force in a school uniform as a 15-year-old child. I'm glad I never made that choice, but I'm also kind of glad that I understand the context. And while always condemning political violence, the key thing for me as a peacemaker, as a person involved in conflict transformation, particularly within a religious framework, was how do you give people a new start, a new beginning, a new route? Because you can't define a person by their worst act. We're working our way up to the year that Gary Mason has chosen as the year that made him, 1998, the year of the Good Friday Agreement. Gary, when and why and how did you first start engaging with Sinn Féin? was the late 1980s. I was ordained, well, good Lord, now Julian, seems a lifetime ago. <laughs> and I was never more church-wise or parish-wise, more than a mile from an interface or a peace line. So for listeners, uh, interfaces or peace lines, think uh, Berlin-type walls, which peppered the landscape of Belfast, separating Catholics from Protestants. And at that stage, I was in northwest Belfast, an area highly riven with conflict. In fact, 25% of all the killings took place within a two-square-mile radius within North Belfast. Mm. Uh, so it was a real kind of, I mean, it was the kind of epicenter in many ways of the conflict. And there's a group of clergy, I was the youngest, that just began conversations, dialogue with, with the other, uh, both those who were involved in Sinn Féin and the IRA and those who were involved in loyalist paramilitary groupings. And I often say to people, they were difficult conversations. I mean, I know we'll come on to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict eventually, but it's interesting. I've had a thousand Israelis and Palestinians uh, in uh, Belfast and Dublin over the last 10 years. And they always say to me, Gary, you're not getting this. Do you not realize we don't trust each other? And I look back to those late 80s, Julian, and I kind of say, like, guys, did you <laughs> really think the first time we walked into a room like we were popping bottles of champagne and hugging and kissing each other. People in the room hated each other. But I do underline this, Julian, for your listeners. You cannot use the lack of trust as an excuse for not beginning a process. Because very simply put, trust only evolves in the meaning of a human relationship. Asking the question, if I had been born in that position, what choices would I have made? So we know, Gary, that there was the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Tell us about that year for you. Yeah, because it was kind of stop-start. I mean, I often, you know, just kind of widening the context there a bit. If we were having this conversation, Julian, in the early 1990s, it would be going in a completely different direction because there were probably three main conflicts grabbing the world's attention. There were others. There was South Africa, Israel-Palestine, and Northern Ireland. Interestingly, wisdom of that day was saying, I was just reading this actually in the New York Times last night, why did Oslo fail? But most people were saying in the early 1990s, the Oslo Accords seemed to be finally getting the Israelis and Palestinians over the line. Apartheid, as you and I know, was ending in South Africa. And most people looked at the island of Ireland and said, what a mess. Dear old Winston Churchill, as you know, affectionately known as the British Bulldog, said, the Irish problem is intractable. Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, said, 
the Irish problem is intractable. Well, they were wrong. Because here we are, decades later, and with the Good Friday Agreement, it showed that eventually we did get over the line. But it was not an overnight phenomenon. It was painful. It was difficult. Because literally up until, you know, four or five days before the signing of that agreement, George Mitchell really gave them a kind of, it was a kind of last chance saloon. He said, guys, we're going to take 48 hours. We can't get this finalized. I'm going back to the States. So the very... Like clever hand to play, but maybe it may not have been a clever hand to play. But as you and I know, in hindsight, Julian, it actually worked. So it really, the pressure then drove people, uh, proximity talks. And interestingly, most people don't know this. I mean, the parties at that stage were not meeting face to face. They were defined as proximity talks. So one certain political group was in another room and someone was in another room and the kind of interlocutors or runners racing between the two rooms as they were changing the text and writing the text and worked all through the really the night of the 9th of April spilling into the 10th of April when eventually and it really did confuse us all it was announced the deal has been done um, and I mean it was not expected uh, but credit to George Mitchell but he did say one thing, Julian, I often remember these words and often quote them. He said, if you think getting this deal was difficult, and it was, implementing it will be even more difficult. And as you know, here we are 25 years later, the pair of us in the summer in Australia, early winter in Ireland, we're still talking about the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement because there's bits of it still have not been implemented. And I often remind people that you know, real peace processes do not really begin on the day the agreement is signed and it's all done and dusted. It's a long protracted process dealing with areas like victimhood, legacy, narratives. So the Good Friday Agreement had three components, Julian. Prisoner releases, weapons decommissioning, and reform of policing. So we're still, in many ways, the reform of policing is still ongoing. Weapons decommissioning was meant to happen two years by 2000. The IRA didn't decommission their weapons until 2005. The loyalist groupings didn't decommission their weapons until 2009. In fact, the Ulster Volunteer Force and Red Hand Commando, the most lethal on the pro-British side, read their weapons decommissioning statement in late June 2009 in my church building. So that was 11 years after signing the Good Friday Agreement. You've really put the emphasis there on the long-term process in the phrase peace process. Did what happened on the 10th of April in the year that made you, 1998, Gary, did it fundamentally and perceptibly change the work that you were doing or was it just the process going on? It was a process, Gillian. I mean, the very phrase, the way you used to ask me that question, peace process, as you know, it's not a peace event. The process means it's an ongoing process. I mean, reform of policing took quite a long time. Release of prisoners happened over two years. The reintegration of prisoners, even this very day, is still ongoing. I mm. mean, today after I uh, finish this, I'm doing another meeting and then I'm chairing a meeting in the inner city area in Belfast, uh, looking at the continuous integration of prisoners, but also the fallout of our conflict. So, I mean, statistically there, Julian, and I know most of your listeners will not even know these statistics, one in five ex-prisoners are drinking themselves to death. 
So they're because of the, the past, the history, they're self-medicating. Bizarrely, tiny Northern Ireland has the highest rate of prescribed antidepressants in Western Europe and one of the highest in the world. And you're saying, really? Like 25 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement? The answer is yes. So mm. so trauma, I mean, I know we'll come on to the Israeli-Palestinian theater eventually. Can you imagine the trauma in that region? And I'll talk about that uh, as we move this into... So many people are traumatized. I mean, I'll give you an example. A group that will be completely nameless, a group of Israelis and Palestinians contacted me five weeks ago. Says, Gary, we're, we're arguing a lot. Will you facilitate some conversations between Israelis and Palestinians? So I goes, on my laptop puts together a six-week possibility, knowing deep down inside, Julian, this is probably a bit premature, but I put it through to them anyway and got the email that I was expecting. Gary, we're not ready for this. We've decided to bring in a trauma specialist and then we'll bring you in as the facilitator a bit down the road. Mm. So that trauma is passed, you know, seamlessly, Julian, from generation to generation. Uh, 4,000 people almost died in our conflict. Doesn't seem a lot, but I often say if our conflict had happened in the United States over a 30-year period, 700,000 people would have died in the United States. So pro rata, it's a very, very high statistic. Julian, mm. we have had more suicides. So simply put, we have had more than 4,000 suicides in the last 25 years that are conflict-related. Mm. Mm. People aren't able to live with themselves. Uh, terrible parenting skills. Uh, not good at developing meaningful relationships. So that trauma in many places that suffered extensively in the conflict, it's part of the DNA, it's part of the fabric. So much of my pastoral work, particularly when I was in parish ministry before setting up Rethinking Conflict, I mean, I developed the, the Eskenos project, which was a 30 million US dollar post-conflict shared space urban village. So a lot of that was around therapy, listening groups, having conversations, talking about experiences that people had bottled up for decades. So that work still goes on today as we speak here in 2023. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned the work that you've done on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well, and the thousands of people that you've brought from the Middle East to Belfast. That conflict is obviously at an especially low ebb at the moment. Um, are the lessons of Northern Ireland translatable in your mind to all conflicts? Are the building blocks for peace always the same? I'm often asked that question, Julian, and you can imagine during our conflict, uh, you're definitely expert and alleged and so-called expert coming and telling us, Irish and British, this is what you need to do. And we kind of just, of course, when they were not looking, we quietly rolled our eyes and said, mm, really? And I think it's important to say to listeners that the Good Friday Agreement is not necessarily the template for the Middle East. Uh, they need to find their own dynamic, their own shape. But in hosting a thousand Israelis and Palestinians here from sort of 2012 onwards, so say a year ago at a group, probably what I defined, Julian, uh, my children's generation, those in their 20s and 30s, uh, emerging young leaders within that Palestinian-Israeli theatre. And a young Palestinian woman on the first evening come up to me with a, a kind of gruff, grumpy-looking face, and she said to me, honestly and candidly, says, you know, Gary, I think this is just a waste of time. And I said, Do you know what? You may be right, but I want you at the end of this 
just to come and possibly say three words to me. I said, well, what may those words be? And the three words were simply, Julian, maybe, just maybe. And I said, you're a young woman. Primarily, I want to send you away, not with a blueprint for the Middle East, but with something I call the oxygen of hope in your lungs and in your soul. That looking at what was defined as one of the most intractable uh, conflicts on planet Earth was finally resolved. It's not utopia, but my kids' lives are very, very different to my life in the 70s, 80s, and spilling into the 90s. So in the last evening, you know where the story's going, and I'm sure your listeners go, it does have a happy ending, so I'll tell you that before I tell you the <laughs> final three lines. Uh, this young woman comes up, puts her arms around me, says, Gary, maybe, just maybe. So I say a lot of my work, Julian, is trying to give belief and hope in very dark, difficult spaces. And as I look at the Middle East as an outsider, but as also someone, I should have just been home from that region two days ago. Obviously, I was taking a group of our emerging young leaders out, and it was just too risky and dangerous to do that during this ongoing war. But in reality, we only got real security when we dealt with the root causes of the conflict. When we address why did we start killing each other in the first place? And for Israelis and Palestinians ever to get over the line, they need to do that difficult work, whatever it is, one state solution, a two state, a confederation, a federation, that is none of Julian's business or Gary's business. But they need to address what framework will allow those two people to inhabit that tiny space in the Middle East. And the other concept is the role of civic society, people working on the ground, people building peace at grassroots level. Because peace processes are lived out in divided societies. I mean, why the Oslo Accords failed, as we all know now, looking back 30 years, <laughs> there was no civic society ownership. It was an elite process by elitists meeting in Oslo. And then when it was bounced in civic society within the Palestinian-Israeli framework, people went, where did this come from? But in reality, our space, for probably a decade nearly before the Good Friday Agreement, civic society actors, among a number of disciplines, were building the peace, working at the peace. I kind of described it. We were breaking up that hardened soil of rampant sectarianism. And actually, as a Jewish theologian once said, uh, dehumanization precedes genocide. So we were humanizing the other. At the moment, both Israelis and Palestinians, and I totally understand, I get this, I lived through this process, uh, have totally dehumanized each other because of what is going on in that situation. So how does a process of eventual humanization come about? And saying that, you're not going to bring every extremist into the tent. Some people have to be marginalized. And we had to marginalize are hardliners on both sides to eventually get a deal. But it's getting a critical mass over the line was absolutely essential within our process. Well, Gary, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on The Year That Made Me. Thank you so much. And uh, I look back to 1998 with a huge sigh of relief. And uh, it is one of the most successful peace processes of the last 50 years. And we always finish the year that made me with a piece of music. And you've got a very interesting selection for us, Gary. I was wondering which part of the hymn book it was going to come from, but you haven't even gone to the hymn book. So and my heart will go on as the song I picked. The reason being, um, the Titanic, as most people know, was built in Belfast. Many people don't know it. The kind of uh, in-house joke here, uh, Julian, because we all know it, it sank in its maiden voice. But the in-house joke in Belfast is it was okay when it left here. So it was nothing <laughs> to do with us. It was a North American iceberg that... Uh, <laughs> 
decimated. <laughs> but it's interesting, 1912 was an interesting space here because we had the Home Rule Crisis where we almost moved to an internal civil war in the island of Ireland with the building of the Titanic, the famous Titanic ship. But interesting as well, it was also a key year for the women's suffragette movement that was on the rise in Ireland. So those three big events uh, were also shaping the island of Ireland. And really that 1912 has shaped this space in Ireland for almost well over now 100 years. So the Good Friday Agreement broke some of that mythology up that we would never get over the line. But we still look back to those years because those 100 years from 1912 to 1922, that 10 year block, shaped this island for 100 years. Well, here it is. My heart will go on. Gary Mason, thank you once again. Best wishes. stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.